0: This episode of The Outside Interview is brought to you by Ministry of Supply, makers of performance clothing for the Modern Workday. We're adding a new show to The Outside podcast this week, featuring conversations with some of the most interesting people in the outside world. And when you're switching to a new format, you need clothes that can transition with you, like Ministry of Supply's merino wool v-neck that I'm wearing right now. With four-way stretch and variable knit construction, it gives me the flexibility to hand off the podcast to Outside's editor, Chris Kies. And it was a seamless transition until we sent him out to interview Robert Young Pelton this week and someone left him alone with a piece of technology.
1: I want to beg for uh, a couple more questions sure. because you, I, I committed the cardinal sin of journalism. I for- <laughs> forgot to press record for the first 10 minutes. Oh, okay.
0: Thankfully, Ministry of Supply uses coffee-infused fibers to better absorb odor, so no one notices your cold sweat as you pass the mic to an audio novice. Visit ministryofsupply.com/outside for 15% off your first purchase, or visit a store in Boston, San Francisco, or Washington D.C. and mention the show for the same discount. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Interview. I'm just going to test your
1: guys' mics and I can
0: just- with Chris Katz So this week, Chris talked with Robert Young Pelton, and as you may have heard. We had some technical difficulties. Do you do you do you want to defend yourself in any way?
1: No, I, I can't defend myself. <laughs> uh, yeah, he. You know, we we were working on this you know cloud based platform, and I think we were working out the details for days. And I was just hoping he'd show up on my screen as as present there. And once he was there, and I could hear him, I just completely forgot about the most important piece, which was to press record.
0: No. I'm not saying that Chris got nervous about talking to Pelton, but you could forgive him if he did. Robert Young Pelton is a pretty big deal. What drew you into him, and and why did you want to talk to him?
1: Well, I think, first of all, I think we're all familiar with the beer commercial character of the most interesting man in the world, and it's hard to think of any living person right now who can lay claim to that title more than Pelton. I mean, the guy has been everywhere, done everything, and his... When I went to his Wikipedia entry, it, was, it sort of reads almost as unintentional satire because it's nearly impossible to believe that he's done all the things that he's chronicled in that space. I mean, he's helped uh, Steve Jobs on the Macintosh product launch. He was once held hostage by rebels in Colombia and joined the CIA in the search for Osama bin Laden. So, I mean, right there, it's like how could you not want to talk to this guy who's been present um, at all these kind of key moments in history?
0: It's pretty easy to chart Belton's life in two acts. Act 1, massive success in business. Act 2, incredible success as an adventurer. But he says that growing up, it really didn't seem like he'd amount to much. Chris takes it from here.
1: You grew up in Edmonton, Canada. What did your parents do? <laughs>
2: Uh, Edmonton is is very far north and my father was a salesman for an industrial pipe supply like a drilling supply company and my mother was a draftsman and a map maker so that marriage lasted about two and a half years. Um, I think well I was a poor kid you know so I when I graduated from high school and I fully intended to go to university and, and my mother decided that it would be a good idea not for me to live at home and go out on my own at age 16, which is fine if you have money and things like that, but I didn't have any money. So I lived in a car and I picked fruit in British Columbia and uh, survived, you know, day to day. It's it's very John Steinbeck-ish. But, um,
1: so you're picking fruit, um, any other jobs that you had during that phase? And this is what, age 16 to 18-ish?
2: Yeah, so age 16. So when I was in high school, I I took an aptitude and interest test. I was a very bright kid. They thought I was retarded when I was in uh, grade three. They kicked me. I got kicked out of grade two, and I spent a few years in a library. And then when they tested me at a university, they found out that I was actually very bright. And that the reason I didn't do my homework was I was reading the Odyssey by Homer, and I was fascinated with that rather than this ridiculous schoolwork. Um, So I took this test and I said I was good for three things. One was astronaut, which for a Canadian isn't that productive, Um, adventurer, which there weren't any ads for jobs for adventure and, and advertising man. So I said, well, I guess I'm going to be an advertising man. And I literally drove my car, my pink Rambler to Toronto. And I decided I would call the president of every ad agency in the phone book, starting with the A's all the way to the Z's and most of the names of the ad agencies, like J. Walter Thompson or Young and Rubicam, were names of dead people. So I would ask for Mr. Rubicam, and, <laughs> and they would say, he's been dead for 20 years. And I'd say, well, who's the president? And I would tell them with my sense of entitlement that uh, I'd taken a test in high school, and they said I should be an advertising guy. Can I come down and meet with you? and uh, strangely enough about five or six presidents of ad agencies met with me and they were shocked to see this 16 year old kid full of piss and vinegar who was bound and determined to be an advertising man except I had no idea what advertising was and uh, one of the one gentleman named Bob McAuliffe who had a PhD in theology of all things um, said you know you should start in the mailroom that's that's where I started and that's not a bad thing and you know, you don't have any experience. You don't know what you're doing, but go, go in the mailroom and then you can get in. So I go right down to the mailroom and I say to the guy in the mailroom, give me a job. I was just talking and uh, he said, I should get a job in the mailroom. He said, what experience do you have delivering mail? I said, none. Sorry. So, so I got a job delivering mail at a stock brokerage and then I came back about <laughs> four or five months later. I said, okay, I got, a, I got experience as a mailboy gave me a job. So he gave me a job. And then within six months, I I wrote a marketing plan from scratch on my dad's old Remington. And um, they they couldn't crack this new business thing for a thing called Wagon Wheels, which is, you know, junk food. It's like a, a round biscuit. And I went to the supermarkets, and I talked to housewives, and I asked them questions. And I wrote this whole advertising campaign and strategy. And I honestly don't remember my snappy headline or, you know, sizzling copy. Uh, but I put a lot of work into it. And um, I handed it in to Bob McAuliffe, and I didn't hear much. And then as I was delivering mail, people would give me dirty looks. And I asked what happened. He said, well, we had a meeting, and Bob McAuliffe asked us, how long have we been working on this pitch? You know, do we have anything exciting? No. And he passed this thing around. He said, well, what do you think? And they said, oh, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. And he said, you know who wrote that? And he said, no. The, the effing mailboy who makes a dollar an hour <laughs> wrote that. I had humiliated the entire agency, and they promoted me to be a copywriter. So at age 17, I was a copywriter for Baker, Baker Barton, Dursting, and Osborne in Toronto.
1: You stayed in advertising on and off for, for quite a while after that. Was, was there something to that aptitude test, do you think?
2: Yeah, I, yeah. It's it's like I said when I took the aptitude test, I had no idea what what advertising was, and I should have been an astronaut, I guess. But I was very good at advertising. I was my company, Pelton Associates, was on the Inc. five hundred list. Uh, we did some extraordinary things. Um, I also worked with Steve Jobs on the launch of the Lisa, and then he had me come back for the launch of the Macintosh.
1: And. So you're obviously, you know, working working for Apple that early on, um, you're having, clearly you're having success in your career. Um, nothing so far seems to point to you being a guy who would eventually seek out warlords. How, how did that shift take place?
2: So I worked for a guy named Stan Cates, and, and he married a nice lady who was a hippie. And and she said, I'll marry you, but every month you have to leave your business. Well, he's a workaholic, of course, worked in real estate. And we have to go somewhere, and you can't take your phone, you can't call the office, nothing, zero. And Stan used to do that because he felt, okay, i got to do it for my wife because I won't have a marriage, but if my company is strong enough and I can leave it run for a month, you know, like taking your hand off the wheel and having the the junior captain sailor, then it's a strong company. And he used to come back refreshed, happy, tanned. I mean, you know, it was obviously a positive thing. And so I decided that when I had my business, I would try to have that same discipline where no matter what was on fire... I mean, I worked like a dog, you know, seven days a week, 10, 12 hours sometimes. Um, I would take that month off, and what I would do is I would find the most remote place on Earth, and I would just go there. So (laughs) I was looking at maps of Borneo, like, okay, I'm going to Borneo, I'm going to do an expedition. And on some of these things, like I did the Camel Trophy in Africa, uh, I would meet journalists, and they would make fun of me. You know, they'd say, well, anybody can go to Africa or Borneo, you know, but try getting into Algeria and the GIA, try getting into the southern Philippines, try getting into Afghanistan. I thought, you know, they're right. That sort of 18th century sense of danger versus the kind of yuppie sense of, oh, I'm going mountain climbing. Uh, it was quite intriguing and so i started shifting my trips to meet rebel groups which sounds weird when you say it but i mean i thought well let's go i'll go find a rebel group and i'll call you and i'll set up an interview
1: and how old are you at this point
2: uh, i'm in my mid to late 30s okay and i don't have any special skills i was never in the military i you know bear gorillas i'm not that kind of survival dude uh, but I would just relentlessly go after a rebel group. And so would, what was the first one? First one was the GIA, the Gamay Islami Algerian, who specialized in cutting people's throats. And they sent me a fax saying, if you come to Algeria, we'll cut your throat. And I thought, okay, well, there's a challenge. So I applied for a visa with the Algerian embassy, and they said, um, no, you can't come as a journalist because it's forbidden. And then I said, oh, no, no, I'm I'm going as a tourist. He said, fine, boom. They gave me a tourist visa. And I was there during the elections, which was actually the most dangerous time. And I remember being the only outsider in this old, beautiful hotel. uh, And about, I don't know, 200 journalists in this other hotel. And I would wander over to the bar because I got lonely in my hotel. And they thought it was very funny that here's this guy on vacation and he's in the world's most dangerous places. And I thought it was funny that they were there in the world's most dangerous places. And I would find a guy, and I would say, take me to the Triangle of Death. And, and he would think I was kidding. I said, no, no, I want to go here, here, here. And when I got into this region, uh, people would dra- literally drag me out of the car and say, I'm not afraid to talk to you. Come here. And they would show me all these things, and they would tell me that it was the government that was killing them, and that they were not going to put up with this crap. And then I got arrested. I got nailed by some plainclothes cops, who were called the Eradicators. It's a nice name. <laughs> and uh, I told them, I'm just a tourist. I'm just here meeting with people, which is true. Uh, and I had a camera. was like, I guess a journalist has a camera. And I happened to, you know, take notes. So I had notes. And uh, I was sent back to the main hotel. And then I was visited by one of those kind of creepy guys in Ray-Bans that chain-smoked cigarettes. And he wrote on a piece of paper saying, you're allowed to go here here, and here. Have a nice vacation. So I went right back out to the Triangle of Death the next day, and I got picked up again. But once again, it was fabulous being with these people uh, because they were terrified. And this is where they put people's heads on sticks outside villages. You know, it was a brutal war. And I set up, through one of these contacts, an interview with one of the members of the GIA and uh, called my friend who was a Turkish journalist, and I said, here, here's here's an interview. this is his contact, you know talk to them and then i went back home and and i felt bad and i decided i should write something about this because these people had worked so hard uh, to keep me safe and to get me into these areas that i felt like it would just be ridiculous to go there and pretend like nothing happened so i started writing down what i did and that's where i came up with this idea of why aren't there travel guides to places that you need them to. In other words, like you don't need a travel guide to Hawaii or Disney World or France or whatever. Why aren't there travel guides to Afghanistan, Somalia, and whatever? And I bought a publishing company called Fielding Travel Guides and I tried to hire people and I thought, "Well, maybe I'll hire CIA people, I'll hire, I don't know, military, whatever." And they just laughed at me. And then I went to the bookstores and they said, "Robert, why would somebody buy a book about a place they don't want to go to?" And I said, yeah, you have a point. I mean, but I kept writing this book. And when I was done, it was a 1,000 pages. And I published it. And the very first edition sold over 140,000 copies. And I was blown away. I Like, I didn't know how much books. That's my first book. So I didn't know how much books you would sell. And it became sort of this cult book. And everybody would read it from the CIA to journalists. And a lot of very famous journalists actually read that book and got excited. A lot of people in the military read that book or joined the military from reading that book. So it's not it's not targeted to one demographic. But that book became very well-known.
1: Did you have a definition in your head of a dangerous place at that time?
2: Yeah, a dangerous place is any place where people want to kill you for whatever reason. And the idea was to take real survival information not not the stuff you read in survival guides but like how do you actually survive a gunfight how do you actually survive you know checkpoints in liberia and take it from real experience not not hypothetical experience when i published this book it also coincided with the death of some of my mentors you know my my father died of lou gehrig's disease so i had six months to get to know him Uh, one of my clients got hit with a racquetball and broke his collarbone and found out that he had terminal bone cancer. There's just a lot of weird things happening. And I was making $500,000 from Marvel just to answer the phone. That was one of my clients was paying me half a million dollars a year just to answer the phone. And I drove a Silver Rolls Royce. I had $1,600 suits. I had half acre ocean you know, oceanfront property home. And I just thought, this is not what life is about. This is I'm not going to drop dead thinking that I should have done this or I wish I had done that. So within, I don't know, six months, um, ABC News decided to do a special internet feature on me. I invented the SOJO, the solo journalist concept. And I went to the most dangerous places on each continent. And um, I brought along a little camera, a little hand-sized camera. So I was with the Taliban in Afghanistan. I was with the rebels in Bougainville. I was in um, South Sudan, which back then was called Sudan. I was with the SPLA rebels on the front lines. And the poor cameramen would keep chickening out, and they wouldn't follow me. So I kept filming, thinking, well, you know, I'll film it, and then you can use it. Uh, And then when I got back, this thing had a huge following. I think they said the audience was about 800,000 readers every week. And I would send videos and I would send uh, pictures and I would write questions. I would ask, because for example, I was at a hotel in Uganda and they put a bomb under my table and I filmed it all. And then I said to people, if you were a journalist, would you film these people bleeding to death or would you put your camera down and help them? So I I tried to spike this thing with these sort of, I don't know, soul searching ideas because I wasn't functioning as a journalist and I wasn't functioning as a as a traveler i was just somebody trying to meet up with these rebel groups and then when i took that footage to discovery they're like okay we want we want this show and i said okay but the deal is i get to go anywhere i want and you have to run it and they go okay
1: did you make any the, you know looking back huge mistakes in that in those earlier days
2: uh <laughs> People always say, well, you know, what, what's your most dangerous experience or how many times did you almost get killed? Or, I mean, I was literally going into every war on a regular basis with the rebel side, not the, not the good guys. I mean, with the guys that were surrounded and getting hammered and whatever. And I was doing it with such speed and rapidity that statistically I, I, I was going to be dead at some point. You know, I got hit by a car in Peru. I got, like I said, I got somebody, ADF guy putting a bomb under my table in Uganda the Speaks Hotel. I got kidnapped in Colombia. I mean, it just went on and on and on. And, and I was, you know, like when you skip a stone over the surface, I was just going to so many war zones and meeting with so many people that it became routine. I, I wasn't getting what I really should get out of it, which is sort of life-changing experiences. There's, There's nothing more soul-crushing, I think, than having everything you want and just doing it all the time and not quite figuring out why you're doing it. Hmm. In 2003, I had an eight-show no-cut contract from Discovery with a celebrity endorsement fee. I think it was 100000 bucks a year just to say I was on Discovery. And my friends, my Special Forces friends, were in Iraq. And the war was about to start, and they said, come on, come over to Iraq. We're we're running around hunting scuds. And I left that contract on the table, and I ended up in Iraq, and I bought one of Uday's red Bentleys, and I spent months, I was gone for six months, driving around Iraq during the war in this red Bentley, cataloging mass graves, because people would come out of their houses and talk to me and take me to these places where... 200, 300, 400, 500 people have been executed and then bulldozed into the ground. And I really liked that. I really enjoyed being the guy that was doing something productive.
1: So this is really interesting to me because uh, um, you correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't seem like you're someone who's spent a lot of time on a, a therapist's couch. But I'm wondering, as you say, you know, you you went into so many war zones that it became routine. What was driving you at that point, and, and as you say, you're, you're even wondering why you're doing this yourself, because you're not getting the enjoyment out of it that uh, you had originally intended?
2: Let me give you an example. So I was in Afghanistan with the Taliban, there's not a lot of newspapers there, right? I then fly from, uh, well I drive out of Afghanistan, I fly from Pakistan to Uganda. I have no idea that the ADF has said they're going to kill an American. I have to catch a bus the next morning to go to South Sudan to meet with the rebels. They put this bomb under my table. Another bomb goes off, and I'm helping all these bleeding people. Another bomb goes off the street, just about half a mile of the street. I grab a security guard, and pickup truck, and I say, let's go, and I go to this bomb. And there's three um, girls that had opened this bag, and one was dead in pieces. The other gal was comatose, and one had her legs blown off, but she was still alive, the top part of her body, she was still alive and and lucid. And I was lying to her by saying, oh, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. So I carry her to the pickup truck. And then I yell back to the guy, don't forget her legs. And he says, well, how am I going to carry her legs? And I say, put it on a blanket. So we go get her legs on a blanket and put it in a truck next to her. And then I have to catch a bus that night. So literally three hours later, I'm on a a stinky, sweaty bus, and I'm completely covered in blood. I mean, I'm completely soaked in people's guts. And then I drive for 12 hours up to Gulu, and then I take a pickup truck, and I'm on the front lines just south of Juba with the SPLA, and a guy wearing a banjo, I mean, a, a badger hat, is playing a banjo made out of an ammunition crate singing a song, and I'm filming him. So you'd imagine what my life was like. I just, there was no normal. There was just this, the most extreme uh, things you can do. So I I, I realized that you can, you can just go so far into the, I guess, not the bizarre, but I mean, the most extreme experiences and not even have a measuring tape for how extreme they are. They just become normal to you. I'm wondering if there's downsides to that for your
1: lifestyle. I mean, there seems to be an increasing awareness among war correspondents that, you know, just simply covering these wars can leave journalists with some post-traumatic stress as well. You know, Sebastian Younger's written about this recently. Has that ever been a concern for you or something that you've dealt with?
2: And I never liked working as a journalist. I worked for 60 Minutes, I worked for ABC Investigative, I worked for CNN. I don't like that line of work because it's like being a tourist, right? You're you're doing embeds, you're sort of being you're in a normal environment. I, I'm old school. I, I'm actually with the rebels. Like when I'm in Grozny, I'm surrounded by the Russians in Grozny in 1999 and they're trying to kill us. So I'm I'm experiencing real war and it, it affects me. In other words, I'm not watching other people. I'm not trying to distance myself. So I'm, I guess what I, I'd like to think is by fully experiencing these things, I don't have any residual... Like, I don't get nightmares, I don't wake up screaming, I don't have any problems. And when I'm exposed to, you know, grotesque, and, uh, and I was in Liberia with the Lurred Rebels, and my gun boy gave me a severed head, and he, wanted, he put a wire through the ears, and he thought I would take it back with me as a gift. And, you know, things like that are, are normal for there, but they're very abnormal when you come back. So I, I tried to help people understand that this is how people live. I mean, this is not unusual in these places. But at the same time, I don't feel any guilt. I don't feel like I have to answer for anything or I don't have any emotional problems. I, I did what I wanted to do. I helped these people communicate what was happening. I covered wars that nobody else wanted to cover. I wrote about it. And I filmed it. You know, if you saw my South Sudan documentary I did for Vice... You know, Tim Fresh and I were there in the midst of the most brutal murders that I've seen in a long time, you know, when the White Army were attacking Malakal, And we were walking around filming it, you know, when we're not we're not accepting it, we're not allowing people to do it when we see grotesque things. But, you know, that is war. That's what happens when people start killing other people. Mm.
1: Um, You're in Malta right now as we record this. Can you tell me a little bit about the work you're doing there?
2: Yeah, so I'm, I'm a strategic advisor for the Migrant Offshore Aid Station, which was founded by uh, Christopher and Regina Ketrabone in, in 2013, with the idea that they would create a private NGO that would rescue people at sea, not not just migrants, but anybody. And the reason I got involved is because I had been chatting with Christopher Catrambone on and off for a few years. He would call me up randomly in the middle of the night and just start talking to me, not even introduce himself sometimes. And he's a very fast talker. He's 34 years old. And at that time, I think he was in his 30s and uh, he had a very successful insurance business in Malta. And he had this idea to save people at sea and and, uh, we would talk about it. Did you think he was crazy at first? I don't think he was crazy. I, th- I think he's a, an enthusiastic guy who seizes on an idea, but is is fascinated with the execution of it, not so much the, the moral or the strategic position of what he's doing. You know, because you got to remember, charging out into the middle of the ocean and picking up illegal migrants, is not necessarily where you want to spend millions of dollars. I mean, you can build orphanages, you can do many other charitable things, that'll uh, get you a slot in heaven rather than picking up terrified. Africans out of the ocean so it was it was edgy and it was something that had never been done before I mean if, if you remember remember the the boat lift in China and the Mariel and from Cuba I mean there had been that had been instances of flotillas of people trying to escape countries but not a lot of people rescuing them and he jumped in with both feet and he bought a 40 meter fishing boat called the Phoenix and he put a, a deck on the back so a drone could fly off of it. And when I suggested that he use drones, I was talking about in a security aspect, so you could send the drones out, because I spent a lot of time doing missions with special forces. And send the drones out, look at the boats, make sure everybody's okay and there's nobody with guns on board, and then send out these ribs, these, you know, fast inflatable boats, Calm the people down, and then bring them on board. Search them, bring them on board. So I was shocked to find out that he was using these multi-million-dollar commercial drones called Shebel S100s. Beautiful heli drones. You know, they're like a helicopter, bullet-shaped helicopter, about five feet. But they have the same kind of sensor packages that you would see on drones, so they can see miles and miles down on the ocean. So it allows him to cover large areas of the ocean. And um, he hired an ex-military crew of professional search and rescue people. We brought on board uh, medical providers. Right now we're partnered with the Red Cross, which is kind of exciting. And MOAS literally became the most professional search and rescue operation, private one anyways, in the ocean. And we have two ships now and we have the drones and we're sort of the, the leading edge, you know, right off the coast of Libya. We actually fly in Libyan territory, which is very unusual. And just today, we rescued um, over 400 and some odd people off of 10 rubber rafts.
1: Wow. And, and this is, we're entering sort of the peak season right there, right now. And um, can you give us a sense of the scale of the crisis right now?
2: So they, they estimate about a million people travel into Europe as migrants. and the vast majority of those come across the central Mediterranean and the Aegean Sea. And and the reason they do that is because it's very difficult. If you're a Syrian, you're entitled to some type of of refugee status in some European country. But if you try to write a letter from Syria saying, hey, can I come to Europe and will you protect me? It, It just doesn't happen. So they take these boats, they hire smugglers, and they cram them on these boats... Uh, and they go across the ocean. And then once they're rescued, obviously they're landed on European soil and they become partly responsible of the, of the EU. And so that's how they integrate themselves into Europe rather than go through this process. And I met a, a young Lib- a young Syrian lawyer in Libya. I was in prison. Not, I was in the prison visiting some of these people, and he had filled out applications. He was about 25 years old. He had filled out applications for all the Western countries saying, you know, I'm a Syrian, um, I'm being persecuted, blah, blah, blah. And he just said, screw it, and he bought a plane ticket to Tunisia. He was on a bus, and within, I don't know, four or five days, he was in Europe on a boat. And he that was after being arrested by the Libyans, returned, and then trying again. So it's actually very easy to get to Europe using uh, smugglers and it's actually cheaper than flying
1: wow and so as you I, I think as you've described um, once they're out there once they're past uh, 12 miles um, outside of Libyan waters and in inter- international wa- waters any ship that encounters one of these um, flotillas is required to to help because they're in distress is that right
2: yeah, so if, if you understand that the the laws of the sea, UNCLOS or SOLUS, require any ship to stop and respond to an emergency at sea. And, and that doesn't mean that they're qualified to do it or trained to do it or even equipped to do it, it just means that that's the law of the sea. So normally a, a, a oil freighter or you know cargo ship would be tasked by a control center or or a coordination center. In this case, Rome does all the coordination. And they would say, there's a vessel in in distress at this uh, location. Please proceed. And this commercial vessel would go there. They would drop a life raft, and they would pull these people out. Now, that's a normal rescue. Now, we're talking about up to 800 to 6,000 people being rescued. And and you can imagine how that would overwhelm uh, the commercial fleet. So the Navy used to do these things, and the Navy is quite competent in doing these rescues, as is the Coast Guard. But once again, they're not really tasked to deal with this day after day after day after day uh, influx of people who, if left to their own devices, would drown. So MOAS and some other NGOs you know, have decided to create very specific search and rescue vessels with uh, post-rescue medical care on board.
1: And what kind of state are they in when you, when you approach them with your one of your boats?
2: Um, if, we're, if we're lucky, we'll see them with the drone, and we, and we can see them heading in our direction. Uh, if they're 12 miles off, that means they've probably been at sea for you know, three to six hours. Sometimes they've been at sea for two days. Sometimes they get lost. If we can get them early, they're not completely freaked out and dehydrated. Uh, if they've been at sea for a while, there'll be some people that are dead, there'll be people that are just out of their minds with the heat. It's very hot out there, and they don't carry a lot of water. In some cases, they're actually used as human ballast in these wooden boats. They, they cram the, the lower-paying people into the hold. They're, they're fishing boats, and they cram them into the hold until they can't cram any more bodies in there. And that acts as stability for the ship, and then they add another layer of people on top, and when they see a boat that they think is going to rescue them, people will start coming out of the bottom, and all the people will come to one side, and suddenly the boat will flip, it'll go straight down to the bottom. And, and very few of these people know how to swim. I, I spend a lot of time in Libya, and I talked to the smugglers, I talk to the police, I talk to the Coast Guard down there. And what you discover is that this is a phenomena, this is a disaster. You're not going to stop these people. And smugglers will literally pull boats out knowing full well these people will never be rescued because they know that when hundreds of people drown or die, like they did in, in the wintertime last year, that the public will react and try to do something. So we have to be there as a humanitarian organization for anyone, not just, not just migrants. I mean, the very first rescue that MOAS did was a multi sailor. So we're, we're not concerned about the business of smuggling or who the people are that we rescue. But we also are working diligently to bring the idea of safe passage up, which means if all these people are coming and they're allowed to seek refuge in Europe, then let them do that safely. When you allow an illegal operation or an illegal sort of business to flourish... You're essentially allowing criminals to dictate your foreign policy and how people get into your country. So as soon as you legalize the flow of people into your country and you start controlling it, you can actually have a say in who comes in and who goes back. Right now, these people are literally being put on boats and flooding Europe. They're swarming Europe, and they're they're forced to accept them. If you provide safe passage, you can actually meet these people before they get on a boat, say, I'm sorry, you're not going to make it to Europe, and if you take a boat, we're going to send you back, but if you apply for asylum, we'll give you a, a spot or some place, some country live in. It's interesting to look at Australia, who has an extremely draconian program of putting people in concentration camps on the islands of Nauru and running ads in Afghanistan and other countries saying... Don't try to make Australia your home. If you come here by boat, you will never live in Australia. And people say, "Oh, well, they have a zero casualty rate," and that's because people drown thousands of miles away from Australia on their way to Australia. So it, it, you can prevent it temporarily, but you can't stop the mo- movement of humans.
1: So one of your main projects now is this um, this kind of ongoing hunt for Joseph Kony. Uh, leader of the lord's Resistance Army, and you know one of the most wanted men in the world who who is this guy and and what 's your interest in him?
2: Well, I should back up a little bit so when when I did my uh t v thing and my book thing or whatever, one of the things i I felt I should do was actually do something, and I began to run ground networks, which means in Iraq I had seven hundred and twenty people working for me. In Afghanistan and the tribal areas, I had 1,200 uh, people reporting to me. And in Somalia, you know, we tracked all the hostages and all the ships. I had about 70 some odd or 140, depending on the time, working for me. And I became very adept at setting up ground networks, you know, finding out who's what and where they are and what they're doing. And uh, in about 2012, they had this. Coney film and this hysteria about Coney. And, and, you know, my experience is tracking people down. I mean, that's the easiest thing for me to do is just find people who don't want to be found and live with them. You know, and if you look at my Wikipedia page, there's some guy who put a whole list of, a partial list of the people that I've actually been with. Almost all of them are dead now. So um, I thought, you know, I, I want to write a book about Africa because we can't figure out Africa. So I thought I would, and I don't, I don't want to call it a spoof. It wasn't really a spoof, it was sort of high humor. It was like, hey, crowdfund me and I'll go find Coney. And the reaction was exactly as you'd expect it. Half of the people said, fuck, this guy can do it, right? The other half said, this guy's crazy. The half of the people that thought that this was an amazing idea because there's this guy that does nothing but track down rebel leaders, warlords, criminals, terrorists, whatever, is probably going to do it a lot faster than spending $400 million to have special forces and airplanes and helicopters and religious groups, you know, tromping around looking for Coney. So I got a book deal from St. Martin's, and my book now is something like 350,000 words, and it's basically on all the bizarre things that Westerners have done to Africa and all the things that Africans have done to Westerners, and it pivots around my search for Coney. And the idea being that Coney is a minor rebel leader from northern Uganda back in the 90s when I was there, and he was fighting Museveni, who was the dictator, the former rebel, who was persecuting the Acholi people. So Kony was was one of many groups that fought against uh, Museveni, and eventually he was pushed out into Sudan and then bankrolled by Khartoum. But then as he became more and more decimated, you know, it became sort of a a group of poachers and looters and criminals. And Kony has always been in Kafia Kingi, which is this little weird southern part of Sudan, which is sort of half South Sudan, half Sudan. And the reason he's there is because they can't go in there. So the U.S. can't go in there, Uganda can't go in there because it's controlled by Sudan. But what Kony does is he basically has his people poach in Garamba Park bring the ivory to him, and then he sells it to the military, who then take it to the coast and sell it to the Chinese. So it's, it's not a great mystery where Kony is or what he does. The mystery is why we can't find him, why we can spend hundreds of millions of dollars tromping around the jungle under other pretenses. So whether it's you know King Leopold telling people he was going to fix Congo and end slavery and creating a bigger disaster... Or whether it's, you know, what you see now with people saying, oh, we're there to find Kony. But in actual fact, we're just trying to insert America into Africa.
1: So did you ever launch a, an actual expedition to try to find him? And, and how would you, how do you go about doing that?
2: So the expedition is in two parts. So the first part you saw on Vice, I wrote an entire edition of Vice magazine. And so the way you find people is that you find everyone who last saw him, and you get to know his character, who he knows, where he lives. So part one was to hunt down Riyak Mashar, who was the vice president of South Sudan, who fled into the jungle after uh, President Salva Kiir tried to have him killed. So I went to Vice magazine, and they wanted to do the Kony project. I said, good, so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to understand how we messed up Africa. So saving South Sudan... Is a story about how I take a Costco manager from Seattle and we go hunt down React Mashar to find out where Coney is. And then the next phase is to go get Coney. So this year, I'm going to go to Kafia Kingi, you know, through car and through the jungle and the swamp, to go in and meet up with Joseph Coney. And that'll be part two. And
1: assuming this meetup happens, what, what, what's your intention when, the, when, that, when that happens?
2: Well, Coney's kind of a loony guy. I mean, he's very paranoid. He has no intention of giving himself up. He, he wants to negotiate a, a deal, in other words, he's, he said that he has no problem standing trial in The Hague, but you know he feels that uh, Museveni is going to trick him, and he has been tricked. Like he, he did numerous meetings that were under the guise of being peace treaties and he was attacked shortly thereafter, so I don't blame the guy for not trusting. But, you know, I flew down to South Africa to have lunch with the last guy that bushwhacked Joseph Kony, a famous South African mercenary. I met with React Mishar. I met with Kony's people. And the idea is that I want to bring people along on this journey to see, first of all, that Kony is the least important part of what we're trying to do in Africa. You know, we're demonizing people and we're creating a sort of reason to save a country. Kony hasn't been active since the 90s in terms of being a rebel. So he's no different. He's no worse or better than any other African dictator. He's no better or worse than Museveni, who actually runs the country. So my point is is that I want people to understand Africa from a different perspective.
1: Um, you know, we're in this era I think where where a lot of famous people and athletes especially talk about themselves as brands. And um, you know, when you read for example, you know, the, the Wikipedia entry on Robert Young Pelton, it's it's sort of stunning in how vast uh, your experiences are, and, and some of them seemingly unbelievable. I mean, you, you do have this sort of swashbuckling brand. Does your experience as a, as a copywriter and then in the advertising world um, affect the way that you promote yourself?
2: No. I, 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 well, let me put it to you differently. I'm an idiot savant. I never went to school. I never went to university. Everything I've learned, I've learned from actually doing at the feet of smarter people, you know, in the field, talking to leaders of countries, rebel leaders, whatever. And I understand two things. One is you can pretty much do anything you want in this world if you keep doing it and you don't give up. And secondly, that people have to know what you're about, meaning, and this is where the brand comes into it, you know, if, if you're buying a certain product, you want to know that it, it delivers these benefits. And the benefits that I deliver is I am going to find you and I'm going to sit down with you and I'm going to interview you and people are actually going to understand who you really are. I don't have an agenda. I'm not left-wing, right-wing. I'm not trying to save the world. I just want to open a little window so that when people want to learn about that country, that person, that war, they can trust me. Um, And the thing that keeps me alive is when I met with Al-Qaeda, they said, the reason why we're talking to you and the reason why we like what you do is that 85% of what you write is true. And I said, bullshit, 100% is. And they said, no, 85% because 100% would be too much. Meaning that, be skeptical, you know, don't accept things at face value. Fact check what I do. You know, I'm, I'm not here to be a cartoon character. You know, I'm not trying to be Bear Gryllis or... Superman or something. I'm just me. And so I'm not copying anybody. I'm not trying to be somebody. I'm just doing what I find important and interesting, which is why I find myself in the middle of the Mediterranean saving people from drowning, because I feel it's important.
1: So you have this unique perspective, having had all those experiences. I'm just curious, you know, <clears throat> overall, is do you feel the world's getting better and safer or, uh, or getting worse?
2: Um, there are no real wars anymore. When I say real wars, you know, talk about World War II or the Civil War, you know, fixed wars where you have two armies banging away at each other. So you're seeing a lot of very fragmented, brutal, long-running wars. In those wars, people are living. There's little old ladies, there's kids, there's, you know, it, it is not total annihilation. So there's actually less wars now than there were in the 90s. There's less people dying from physical combat, you know, like percentage of soldiers dying. And you can travel just about anywhere in the world. And and when people talk about war journalists and whatever, I keep saying, there's no such thing anymore. You know, when you say the front lines, you know, was it you talking about Paris, you're talking about New York, you're talking about Dhaka? you know, there are no more front lines for war reporting. So I'm, I'm glad that mythology has vanished and that we're not, we're not Ernest Hemingway on the front lines, you know, getting shelled. We're literally in a cafe and somebody walks in and blows himself up. So I would like to think that the world is safer, but at the same time, it's a little scarier.
1: Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
0: Robert Young Pelton is the author of many books, including The World's Most Dangerous Places and Come Back Alive. He spoke with us from the island of Malta on his way to Libya. The Outside Interview is produced by me, Peter Frickright, and Robbie Carver. Chris Kai has asked the questions and sometimes even records the answers.
1: I wish I could say that's the first time. I can tell you it's definitely the second time, but it <laughs> hasn't been a third.
2: <laughs> no, well, well, you know, people normally write notes, and I remember I was trying to use technology like your iPhone, you know, and you hit record and it would mm-hmm. only record a certain amount or your. You spend a month getting to this rebel leader and you set up the camera and you press start and the camera doesn't work and you're like, oh my God.
0: We'll be back in two weeks.